Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is great to be back on the air, but I tell you what I've really uh, enjoyed seeing is all the number of uh, plays that have uh, come about so far from this uh, current uh, book topic uh, podcast series that we're doing. You know, yes, uh, the number is at 52, but it's not so much a number. It just um, helps me uh, remind myself all the more that all of you are not only ardent listeners, but are, but have taken a great interest and appreciation behind what all I share with you guys. Because while, yes, all of us may know about certain events or about a particular person, as we well know that even the textbooks from years past didn't always tell us everything we probably wanted to know or what was available to know. And so therefore, um, with new technology, with new findings, whether it pertains to a historical event or about a person of significant importance, whatever uh, the findings tell us, and we certainly hope that the findings are always for the better, but one way or another, whatever new findings we come into a play with certainly can give us a better uh, understanding of the times that the event or the people whom we're living in um, you know, in other words, we get a better understanding of those uh, of the worlds that those uh, people were living in, including the events uh, surrounding them. But also, if those events that took place had uh, negative repercussions, that we certainly have uh, the ability to better understand why they happened and how we can go about preventing those uh, unfortunate incidents from uh, from never recurring again. In other words, making sure that in instances where um, a negative incident happened or an uh, incident involving mass casualties of life never occurs again. And when I think of an incident where mass casualties of life were taken um, at the expense of those whom were full of hate, I, I think of the Holocaust. And there's that um, there was a famous uh, documentary not long ago called Never Again, meaning that never again should the world ever come across uh, a situation where it's not only just impacting a region, but impacting the greater world where millions of people are losing their lives because of uh, anti-Semitism. So, um, you know, I was going to be on the air with you all last night, but long story short, Mother Nature got in the way. We had some uh, very, very uh, powerful um, storms, thunderstorms, I should say, in my neck of the woods. And um, I did lose power for a couple of minutes, but it came back on. But by the time it came back on, it was um, it was too late to be able to uh, get in a podcast. So I told myself, you know what, you'll just fit it in the next day. And here I am, on the air, ready to go with another episode to the victory with no name, the Native American defeat of the First American Army by Colin G. Calloway. In this uh, podcast segment episode, it's actually going to be a two-part one. Something tells me that with uh, the other, uh, with other podcast segments after this two-part uh, one, that there will probably be other um, two-part um, series uh, based upon how the chapters are uh, laid out. And based upon how those chapters are laid out, I feel that I have to at least do um, two podcast segments for each chapter. It's not a large book, but by doing two podcasts, um, 
by doing two podcast uh, segments per each chapter leading up to the epilogue when that time comes, I feel that I can personally provide you all a very, very thorough, uh, detailed story behind what we're uh, discussing. But as for this uh, podcast uh, segment, including uh, the next, including the following one when I'm on the air again next, it's going to, we're going to talk about uh, confederations in America, not just so much in 1790, but what was taking place confederation-wise prior to 1790. So in this episode, we're going to learn about um, such, uh, we're going to learn about a couple of uh, Indian confederations whose uh, presence was felt well before the well before the United States was even created. So in other words, perhaps these Indian confederations were in existence prior to such a thing as being called colonial America. We'll also learn about um, why Indian uh, conf- the differences between Indian confederations and what the new U.S. government represented. We'll also uh, talk about um, what George Washington did uh, early on in his presidency pertaining to Indian affairs. We will also learn about um, the um, the creation behind the new U.S. government in terms of um, in terms of uh, key leaders whom emerged in uh, George Washington's cabinet, including one whom um, was a very uh, smart fella when it came from a money standpoint and how the government should be operated from a uh, financial per- from a financial perspective. And knowing that this uh, individual also served under uh, under George Washington when he was uh, commander of the Continental Army, so let's go ahead and begin this uh, podcast uh, segment to the victory with no name, uh, the Native American defeat of the First Continental Army. So here we go with our leadoff question. Given the U.S. Constitution had drastically altered a confederation of thirteen step of 13 separate states into one nation, just how effective was the new document beyond paper format? You know, it's one thing to um, actually um, have established a new government on paper or in terms of a a paper format, but how good can the government be when matters big and small come into play? So, what do you all think that, uh, given that the U.S. Constitution had drastically altered a, a confederation of 13 separate states under the Articles of Confederation into one nation, um, just how effective do you all believe was the new document beyond a paper format? Well, it just so happens that it that at the time of its creation, it actually, I don't know just how well the Constitution had been tested, but but the situation pretty much is one that um, has an unlimited set of um, unforeseen challenges. It almost seems as though there is no ending point in sight. So many unforeseen challenges lied in store, ranging from whether or not the new government could execute authority, or I should say adherence to all national laws. In other words, are there going to be states who will challenge the national laws to where they might decide to um, not adhere to them and go about perhaps wanting to nullify all to nullify a federal law that 
is not to their liking. Of course, when I think of nullification, this will be much later on, um, especially in the late 1820s, the start of the 1830s, uh, at least a good 30 years before the Civil War. But when I think of nullification, I think of a, um, a gentleman from South Carolina by the name of John C. Calhoun, very bright man in terms of from a political standpoint, given that he held many political posts. But John C. Calhoun would become the leader not so much of states' rights, but the leader behind nullification. In other words, if there was a federal law that he didn't like, he was convinced that states could um, overturn federal laws. Unfortunately, folks, states cannot overturn federal laws. Federal laws can be overturned by, say, the federal courts, or if it gets to the point where it has to go as high as to the United States Supreme Court, then the United States Supreme Court can even overturn a federal law that it deems to be unconstitutional, but not at the uh, state level. So, yes, uh, one challenge had to do with um, whether or not the new government could execute authority or adherence to all uh, national laws. How about developing resources to govern, to respecting local authority, local authority and protecting individual liberties? In other words, is this, is this new federal government going to be able to respect um, local authority in terms of how the states go about uh, administering their own um, affairs or policies, and let alone protecting such fundamental liberties that oftentimes we do take for granted, like freedom of speech, the right to assemble, petition, the right to be free from an unreasonable search and seizure, uh, the right to be free from uh, self-incrimination, uh, or what we call uh, double, the right to be free from self-incrimination, uh, the right to be free from double jeopardy, being convicted twice of the same crime, uh, the right to, to a fair and speedy trial, uh, the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, uh, just the name of handful of um, fundamental essential liberties. But even in 1787, uh, I should say, by the time George Washington becomes president, it's often been easy to assume that all 13 states approved uh, the United States Constitution when he uh, took office in late April of 1789. It just so happens, folks, that when George Washington took office in late November of 1789, two states had, not, had still not ratified the Constitution. One was in the New England uh, region, and the other was in the Upper South. The one in the New England region was Rhode Island. And the irony to it all, folks, is that Rhode Island was the only uh, state whom did not send delegates to the Constitutional Convention in 1787. The other one was North Carolina. Apparently, it probably is fair to say that delegates from each of those states, even though delegates did not get sent from Rhode Island to Philadelphia, but it just seems uh, to be fair to say that the state legislatures in those two states, the legislators in both of those states, I should say, have probably been engaged in a lot of partisan politics, uh, partisan warfare. And so for Washington, yes, he knows the other 11 states have already approved but he really needs these other two states to get their act together so that America can be a little bit more unified than what it already might appear to be. So the good news, though, is that in late 
1789, in November of 1789, I should say, North Carolina became the 12th state to ratify the Constitution. However, it would not be until about May of 1790, folks, that Rhode Island finally approved the Constitution. Thank goodness, folks, that Rhode Island finally got its act together. Rhode Island, folks, did not even believe that the Articles of Confederation needed changing. That's how um, partisan they were. Even though uh, North Carolina and Rhode Island finally got on the bandwagon with approving the Constitution, in 1790, uh, the United States government is still... It's still in its infancy, folks. In other words, the, the government needs uh, strategies. They need game, it needs game plans behind um, its current financial state because there's a lot of debt that the government owes, and the big question is going to be is how is that um, debt going to be structured to where, um, to where uh, knowing, okay, how much is the federal government going to be responsible for for, um, for paying um existing debts, and I'll talk more about that uh, later on. How about to opening up a mint? You know, when I think of a mint, folks, we're talking about, you know, coining money to circulating uh, paper money. So, you know, this is what we call establishing currency to creating a post office and building roads for mail routes. Uh, how about establishing a national army, folks? That's another issue there. In 1790, folks, the United States as a nation is not fully 100% um, united. Unlike the Indian Confederations past the Ohio River. That's something we need to keep in mind, folks. It's so easy to think that, oh, we've got this you know, constitution and everything's just grand. Even with the new constitution, folks, people are still a little distrustful of one another. And yet... We have uh, people out in the West who've been there long before the first Europeans came, and they ha they have been able to adapt and establish, as the times change, new alliances and alliances that that uh, remain intact even in times of peace. But their objective is to hold on to their ancestral roots, their ancestral ways of life, their lands, because they know that to the east of them, is an invasive species, an invasive species who who doesn't even have an established boundary on where to stop. And the Indians in the West know that that the um, that government officials in the East, if there's one thing they're craving, it's land. And not just land, but money that can be financed to help those move westward to establish new settlements. Now, prior to July 4th, 1776, when Britain's 13 North American colonies severed ties with England, being their mother country, had confederations been known to exist in North America? What do you all think? Do you all think confederations have been around um, well before the first um, permanent English um, settlement establishment happened in 1607 in what we now know as um, Jamestown, Virginia? The answer is yes, folks. Uh, confederations have had, in fact, been known to exist in North America well before July 4th of 1776 and even before uh, 1607. 
So confederations existed amongst the greater Indian populations prior to the first European arrivals or establishments in the New World. Now, I know it's fair to say, and I probably even assumed this too for a great deal of time at, at one time in the past, whenever, I, whenever most of us hear the word confederacy, what do we think of? We think of the Civil War. Uh, the war that divided the states, the war that divided America, the war that almost broke America apart to where there may not even have been no longer a United States of America, especially, uh, yes, as unfortunate as it was that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, the fact of the matter is that, um, not to get off track here, but historians now know that there were at least five assassination attempts on him before, sadly, John Wilkes Booth got him. And historians also know that had Abraham Lincoln been assassinated prior to the Civil War's end, there's a very strong likelihood that um, that uh, bringing America back together as one would not have happened. There is a very strong likelihood that uh, whomever took Abraham Lincoln's place would have uh, compromised with the South to where um, the South would have been allowed to have remained the Confederate States of America and basically meaning that there would have been no United States. But anyways, yes, it's very easy to assume that when we hear the word Confederacy, we automatically think of uh, the Civil War, the United States Civil War and Secession. But uh, Confederacy is more than just one particular um, episode of history. The term uh, Confederacy onto itself is a group of people, being in this case, Indians whom formed leagues, or I should say alliances, based upon a common purpose or a set of interests from such things as bringing about trade to sharing territory. One good example of a confederacy was the League of the Iroquois, or the Six Nations. Now, they, the League of the, it started out as the League of the Iroquois because it was uh, five nations, uh, the Mohawk, Seneca, Oneida, uh, Cayuga, and Onondaga. This, uh, the League of the Iroquois dominated uh, relations between Indians and colonists in the northeastern um, uh, region of uh, North America prior to the Revolutionary War. And it wasn't until the year 1722 when a sixth nation or a sixth Indian uh, tribal group joined the League of the Iroquois that ultimately um, became known as the Six Nations, and that new tribe would become uh, known as the Tuscarora. Now, in the midst of the Revolutionary War, sadly, the Iroquois Confederacy uh, came apart via division, and this division uh, happened to be where resulted in where uh, four of the six tribes fought alongside the British and the other two fought alongside with the um, Americans, aka the Patriots or the Continentals. So it's not just so much a division of what side you're taking, but with division comes loss of land. And sadly, the, uh, the six nations lost a lot of land. But come post-Revolutionary War era, the Iroquois League regained its strength and by doing so went westward into what we now know as Northwest Ohio. Given that they lost their land in uh, New York State, and the Iroquois Nation occupied pretty much all of um, New York State, a good swath of it, given that their territories were um, 
were um, burned and uh, seized, you know, where do they go? They go west. They go west into, um, you know, the Northwest uh, Territory, but they go into territory that um, that uh, basically has not uh, fallen into the hands of this new government. I also found a good example of another um, Indian nation um, that took place in the late uh, 17th century. Uh, the year 1680 saw Pueblo peoples within the Rio Grande Valley being the southernmost part of uh, present-day Texas near the Texas-Mexico line engage in an all-out revolt against Spanish colonial rule, which, which had existed for eight decades. And yes, the Spanish were very, very prevalent in the Southwest. And when I think of uh, Spanish influence in terms of uh, colonization and conquering of Indian peoples, the one that comes to my mind is uh, what happened with the Aztec capital, in Mexico City, known as Tenochtitlan. When I was much younger, I used to call it Tenochtitlan. And, you know, most grown-ups said, you know, Kirk, that's pretty good for someone your age because most people at, at your age, given I was a youngster at the time, couldn't even pronounce it. I even had friends of mine say, Kirk, how do you pronounce that again? <laughs> but as I got older, I learned it was actually called Tenochtitlan. But sadly, the uh, Spanish... Um, Spanish colonial rule had a negative impact to where uh, disease wiped out uh, many Indian tribes in Central and South America, including um, Mexico, where the uh, Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan was. But in 1680, Pueblo peoples took up um, took up arms and um, it really, in a sense, took up the cause and uh, basically were able to. Um, prevail in um, overthrowing um, Spanish uh, colonial rule. Now, in 1790, folks, here's a, another um, powerful moment uh, for the Indians in general. The Creek Confederacy in the southeastern United States blocked American expansion via territory that all, went all the way into what we now know as New Orleans, Louisiana. And whom had that territory not so much territory, but whom controlled um, access uh, via um, via ships into what we now know as New Orleans, the Spanish. So the biggest challenge that even this new government is facing, folks, is that they've got foreign nations still out there west of us. But how can there really be a United States when we have foreign nations, including Indian tribes, that might be impending America's uh, quest for um, further um, growth to where America's um, size uh, can double in territory, but also her national security. Indian confederations of the Northwest, Wabash, and Miami, or some have said Miami, were under a tradition of native movements past uprisings that involved relying upon cultural and spiritual connections in forging a united front behind quest of greater self-governing self means against a quite common non-Indian foe. And who is that non-Indian foe, folks? The United States. The new United States government. 
What made Indian confederations different via the new U.S. government? You all are going to be in for a real treat with this. I was when I read the book. I was blown away. I should have been reminded, but hey, maybe it was a good thing I read this book to really understand just how powerful Indian confederations were. Well, Indian confederations brought non-related tribes, leaders, including towns, together through relationships by qualities, or I should say unique features to origins where tribes um, came from, rituals, or what we would think of as traditional practices, gift exchanges. So there's a whole uh, host of factors. There are, it's not, um, how do you call it? There's no tunnel vision with this. Whereas for the new U.S. government, and remember, it's a republic, as Benjamin Franklin said, it wasn't the best, it wasn't the most perfect government or the most perfect mode for governing, but it was the best that, you know, we could come up with per this new document. So we got to give uh, Benjamin credit for, for the remark he made and also for what our forefathers did, considering that it's still been around for almost 236 years. The new U.S. government centered upon institutions laws, constitutional authority, which sought to divide versus unite. Well, sure, um, institutions, laws, authority, that can certainly um, cause any division, but it also can uh, lead for unification. There has to be a, there has to be a, a system for uh, people to abide by. But at the same time, um, confederations, They may have a set of rules at one present moment, but that doesn't mean that those set of rules would still be in existence a year later or let alone three to five years later. The the rules might have to be altered three to six months later, depending upon the circumstances that um, are brought about uh, before the uh, greater uh, tribes within, uh, within a particular league or alliance. Indian confederations never ceased to stop working, which meant avoiding divisions, which could have enhanced further problems, whereas colonial powers like Britain, France, Spain, even the new United States government, sought strategies where alliances were short-lived only to be followed by acts of war. Now, maybe I should say that France may have been, France might have been different from Britain and Spain. France actually worked, from what I had read from past books that led up to the French and Indian War, the French um, actually worked very hard to establish long-term relations with the Indians. They didn't want to go to war, probably, probably, well, they probably they did have no other choice in going to war against the British and trying to keep the British out from um territory past the Appalachian Mountains, and unfortunately the opposite happened. But the French weren't looking to um, conquer the Indians to the point where they wanted the Indians off their ancestral lands. The British and the Spanish, on the other hand, are more of the heavy hitters where they are um, more about making profits, more about displacing those at the expense of colonialism. In other words, you know, yes, we may work with you short term, but that doesn't mean 
you know, that we want to stay alliance, we would want to remain as an alliance within a broader, um, how do you call it, within a broader um, coalition, say, five years from now or let alone 10 years or longer. So it's just one, to me, it seems like the British and the Spanish were more about getting um, personal gains, whereas for the French, it was more about um, not the personal gains, but the uh, but gains that um, benefited uh, both sides. So, yes, for uh, for those who don't um, value confederations or preach confederations, alliances are short lived, only to be followed by acts of war. What did George Washington conduct on January eighteenth, seventeen ninety? He conducted a presidential ad address to Congress, where we might think of in today's time as a modern-day State of the Union address, where he focused on topics of importance like national defense, where he emphasized the essentials behind preparing for war, including necessary measures to take when encountering Indian tribal nations known to be hostile, most notably in the Northwest, including the Southeast region as well. He also, uh, I found it was interesting, he also included in his uh, speech to Congress um, other issues pertaining to agriculture, commerce, and industry. Washington knows that in order for America to be successful, America's got to take some bold leaps, but America's got to do them the right way, but America also has to be able to eventually get rid of all foreign nations whom are still occupying, whom still occupy territory west of the Appalachians, including uh, territory um, and maybe even posts, uh, military militaristic posts along the Great Lakes. We'll get to that here soon. Uh, what official activity goes about getting held at the very beginning of each decade within the U.S. government? There is a particular official activity, folks that takes place at the very beginning of each decade. What do you think that is, folks? It's a census. Remember, folks, censuses take place once every 10 years. So three years ago in 2020, we would have had a census taking place. It, and just because it took place in 2020, it didn't. It maybe it doesn't mean that it ended on New Year's Eve of 2020. But at the very beginning of each decade, that's when the census takes place. Even censuses are works of art onto themselves, but in 1790, the first federal census took place. Where do you all think uh, the population stands in the new United States? Just under 4 million. 60% of the population was comprised of uh, people um, whose ancestry was that of British. 18% was uh, Scotch-Irish. 9% was of uh, German ancestry, and a lot of that can be attributed to, um, most notably to say, those um, living in um, Hesse-Cassel or um, in the regions of um, what we now know as Germany, that um, of uh, soldiers whom came over to um, America, whom fought alongside the British in the uh, Revolutionary War of uh, the Hessians. So 9% are German and more than twenty, more than twenty percent are Africans. Ninety percent of which were slaves. 
Virginia was the largest state with a population of 747,610. And remember, folks, no West Virginia, no Ohio, no Indiana, no Tennessee or Kentucky. Virginia's a big state, folks. I mean, remember, some are convinced that Virginia probably goes all the way to the Great Lakes. That's how big she is. Even those who came to the New World in 1607 and helped establish Jamestown were convinced that Virginia, or where they had settled, went all the way to the Pacific coast. They may have had some good reasons back then, giving, um, giving they were entering territory that was no man's land, but that's how um, big they truly thought um, where they were settling went in terms of all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But, um, but nonetheless, uh, Pennsylvania was the second um, largest state with a population of 434,373. And there are five cities, four to the north. Well, actually, I take it back. Uh, three, uh, two in the north, two in the middle, and one in the south. The two in the north really are Boston and New York. In the middle, you have the, the two of being Baltimore and Philadelphia. And to the south, Charleston, South Carolina. What, what all do these five cities have in common? Populations of over 10,000 people. Only five cities, folks. That's, uh, that's pretty unique in, uh, to be uh, in that elite group, five cities. Now, tragically, in April of 1790, Benjamin Franklin, whom was a signer to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, died at age 84. He was actually the first signer whom signed the Constitution to die. He didn't make it into the, national, into the nation's first census, which is unfortunate because ben Frank, Benjamin Franklin had a hand in establishing um, the uh, procedures or into what goes about make goes about conducting a census. In other words, Benjamin Franklin was the one that proposed that a census take place um, every 10 years. So when you think of censuses, federal censuses, you think of, uh, we have Benjamin Franklin to thank. 1790 saw high-ranking officers of U.S. judicial districts gather data from 13 states, including districts and territories, which later became the states of Kentucky, Tennessee, Vermont, and Maine. Remember, folks, Maine is what we now know as present-day Maine. That was part of Massachusetts, and it remained that way up until 1820. I thought this was interesting about Kentucky. Uh, the population of Kentucky in 1783 stood at about 12,000. In 1790, Kentucky's population, folks, exceeded 73,000, as many you know, as many and not only many, as many people, not just so much were confined to what we now know as Kentucky, but many people went north of the Ohio River into the region assigned as the Northwest Territory. That's quite a population explosion, folks, to say the least. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, that uh, you know between 1783 and 1790, seven years span at most, we've seen about just over 60,000 people go westward into Kentucky, including a handful of people uh, north of the Ohio River. 
Now, is it fair to say that in the early years of the post-revolutionary war era that regional issues had potential to divide the United States? Oh, there's no question about it that there were enough regional issues that had the potential to divide the U.S., especially on the grounds of land settlement distribution, considering those people living around or just past the Appalachian Mountains felt constantly betrayed by how the new government went about focusing more so on the needs, or I should say desires, of land speculators whose pockets were full of money as they fell under the elite, while those already living west of the Appalachians struggled day by day to survive and making ends meet. So maybe it's fair to say that those whom have money, and those whom have um, money to spend, like maybe there's no tomorrow, or just money to um, invest in with um, land dealings, are probably going to get uh, first dibs by the government in terms of uh, government leaders coming to their attention and trying to meet their needs, while as those whom are living on the fringes or or living just past the Appalachians and are not really getting any kind of protection from Indian um, attacks, they're pretty much left to fend for themselves. And it's like, you know, does this new government really even care about me? Given um, Spain remained an imminent threat due to her uh, continuous presence within um, the United States' um, southern and um, southwest um, regions, uh, which... Um, which foreign nation remained an ever um, an even bigger threat? Okay, given that um, you know Spain's um, Spain has a presence in the uh, southern and southwest regions. Which foreign nation do you all believe remained an even bigger threat? How about England? Isn't that hard to believe, folks? That England, of all nations, could still remain a threat even in the post-revolutionary war era. Well, I can tell you all why. Although the 1783 Treaty of Paris had ended the American Revolutionary War, we should be reminded of the fact, though, that just because the 1783 Treaty of Paris ended the war, it didn't mean that Britain and her um, subjects, or not so much her subjects, but her, but her people being uh, troops, I should say, it didn't mean that all the troops just packed up their belongings and left and in a week or so, and went back to England and resumed their own life and just said, okay, well, you know what? Just let the American people be. Let them see for themselves just how badly they messed up, even though they defeated the world's mightiest empire. Let them see for themselves that maybe they'll fall flat on their faces to where maybe they will call, maybe they will reach out and say, hey, we should have, um, we'd like to reconsider and um, be under, um, be under uh, the rule of a monarch. Well, I'll just say this much. Um, I can say this much to all here. Yes, the treaty did end the war, but Britain did agree to give up territory south of the Great Lakes. How about as well as east of the Mississippi? How about north of Florida? All of this was um, ceded to the United States with the exception of holding out along Great Lakes Territory and Canada. So we have a little bit of a problem here, folks. The British aren't going anywhere north 
uh, based upon they're not going anywhere uh, north of what they've uh, given us. So British troops have established forts from Michilimackinac, which is what we now know as present-day Mackinac Island in, in Michigan. And um, in case any of you are wondering what exactly does Michilimackinac or even Mackinac mean, I found out the other day it refers to a big turtle. The British troops have also established forts in Detroit, Niagara, Oswego on Lake Ontario, Oswegachi on the St. Lawrence, and Oswegachi is in the um, Adirondacks. That's not too far from um, uh, Piercefield and Old Forge and uh, Thendara and um, Inlet, as well as various posts along Lake Champlain. British forts were more than just for militaristic purposes, folks. They served as a means for dominating the waterways, controlling Indian trade, to keeping a steadfast presence in Indian country. And by keeping a steadfast presence in Indian country, what does that mean, folks? It means that the British can basically assert their dominance on this new American government and say, hey, look, try all you want in expanding west into the Ohio Territory. But we have uh, those whom are willing to um, protect their rituals, customs. They have alliances with us, and they will not back down from us, meaning Indians. Not just Indians along the Northwest, but perhaps even Indians, um, Indians elsewhere. But more so in that uh, greater Northwest region, uh, most notably along the Great Lakes and for those living just uh, south of the Great Lakes, but are still a part of that um, Ohio Territory, uh, north of the Ohio River. What concerns evolved over time during the post-Revolutionary War era in the East? And what I mean, folks, in the East are the 13 colonies. I think the, the one big answer here is that, for starters, government leaders feared that unchecked westward expansion could severely depopulate the eastern states. And if people are leaving left and right, what could that also mean? How about further decreases in land values, along with polarization setting in between the regions? You know, it's like that old saying, you know, old money and new money don't um, work well. And sadly, that happens a lot in today's world. You know, Yes, those with old money know how to uh, use the money wisely, and those with new money would rather, you know, flaunt it and, you know, spend it on things that really aren't needed. In other words, it's, would it be fair to say that new money is more about um, acquiring materials that have little to no value, whereas the old money is about preserving what you have and making sure that it's used um properly, not only in the present, but for future generations to come. That's my best interpretation. But what I can tell you here is that prior to any surveying, selling to territorial settlements getting established in the West, or what we think of as in the, nor in the Northwest, peace between Indians and frontiers people or frontiersmen had to be established without fail. <laughs> this will be a challenge onto itself. I can tell you this much, it won't involve singing Kumbaya. Settlers um, 
on the Ohio frontier defined peace, their interpretation, folks, what one group of people interpret as peace is not going to be the same as someone else. But settlers on the Ohio frontier define peace as meaning to be rid of all Indians within the region. In other words, we don't want any Indians in the region. We, we want to be immune from attacks. We want to be immune from anyone whom could um, wish to inflict harm on us. Well, don't we all want to be um, safe and not be harmed? Sure. But at the same time, even if we are going to move westward, don't we need to come up, up, come up with ways or should I say strategies on not to burn bridges? Perhaps so. The bigger question is, can there be a unified front with this? That's a million-dollar question right there. So, for one, uh, I could see where um, settlers on the Ohio frontier uh, were grappled hard with this because past Indian raid attacks had disrupted their lives, where many of them lived in fear, and why not? And then you have land speculators already stationed Westerners turned to the federal government as the primary um, tool for um, defeating to uh, removing all Indians nearby. But at the same time, what is the U.S. government lacking, folks? Authority. Proper authority. So, yes, the frontiers people can turn to uh, the government all they want, but if the government doesn't have proper authority implemented, then how can the government go about doing anything to protect those whom have already made um, settlements past the Appalachian Mountains. It, it, comes, it comes down to where it's not, um, right, as of right now, it's simply irrelevant. The majority of the Continental Army, I think you all remember this from the prologue, the majority of the Continental Army got disbanded at the end of the Revolutionary War, but it turns out that some troops remained in place, such as, get this folks, 25 troops at Fort Pitt, just on the outskirts of present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to 55 troops at West Point. Of course, when I think of West Point in the American Revolutionary War, I think of that infamous Benedict Arnold, whom tried to sell out his country to the British, and that the British could uh, capture West, West Point, and thank heavens it was um, foiled by those three um, individuals performing a security watch, like and they and how they went about um, confronting John Andre, the British uh, officer who was uh, Benedict Arnold's contact. They basically performed a modern day, um, what do you call it, a modern day um, screening, like through like what we think of as the TSA, Transportation Security Administration, John Paul, Isaac um, Van Wert, John Paulding, David Williams, whom would go on to have uh, counties in Ohio named in their honor, as well, as well as towns and villages. So when you think of Paulding and Van Wert, you think of um, John Paulding and Isaac Van Wert. These three men, folks, were our saviors that day in 1780. In uh, late September 1780, they uh, basically... Um, were able to uh, recover the most damning of evidence when John Andre um, opened his stocking, where he where Benedict Arnold's letters were, 
on how to uh, go about capturing West Point. So basically we have 55 troops at West Point, but in June of 1784, the first American regiment was established by the Confederation Congress. The first American regiment was designed for frontier defense purposes with eight infantry and two artillery companies equaling out to 700 soldiers. Hey, this is great, but the problem is that the overall number of figures in terms of how many soldiers ever surfaced, it never exceeded 500 folks. The army was equipped really to only combat local issues. We did not even come close, folks, to dealing with issues on the frontier where peace settlements could have been established. We just have not gotten to that point yet, folks. Uh, so for these local issues, really, they are to be seen as jurisdictional along the frontiers. Only as jurisdiction along the frontiers was beyond weak. Now, did men from uh, George Washington, Henry Knox to Arthur St. Clair, Continental Army veterans, all believe that a national government required the presence of national military? Yes, they all did. But yet they knew that there was a handful of people whom were very skeptical about the presence of a standing army. Washington had concerns about it, but yet he knew that there had to be some form of standing army present, given that, you know, he had to think about the nation as a whole and with national security, given that if we're going to expand westward, we have to ensure that our national security is um, is in place. In other words, how are we going to defend ourselves against Indian raids and attacks along the frontier and ensuring that people to the west of the Appalachian Mountains would receive the same kind of protections as those uh, living along uh, coastal towns and even further inland, say 30, 40 miles inland from uh, coastal uh, communities. So, it would be fair to say that in the case of establishing a national military, which did happen, this was done more so through um, a compromise where the federal government used its authority under the Constitution to raise a national army while states got allowed to keep their own militias. Okay, so both sides win. Yes, um, states, people living in the states, not just people living in the states, okay, you know, even people in the federal government, they could be skeptical of a national army. One political party would be. But at the same time, they can feel good knowing that, all right, the federal government's going to let us um, at the state level still be able to um, retain our militias. What we might think of now is like uh, modern-day National Guards. April 1790, folks, saw Congress implement an additional increase in the size of the regular army. Get this, to 1,273 officers, including men for a term of uh, three years with an extra four companies of infantry. Uh, pay for privates was $3 per month and a dollar taken out for all clothing and medical expenses. But how ironic that before troops got raised... The U.S. was already at war with Indian nations along the Northwest Territory. Pretty um, daunting when you um, here you are trying to um, raise money for an army, and yet you're already facing conflict with nations along the Northwest Territory. Now, what issues stood in the way behind building a national army? And there's a plethora of them, folks, but 
Here's some of them. How about lack of money? Low pay, bad morale, desertions, personal oppositions to standing armies, partisanship there at its best, unstable contract system which sought to provide proper arms, equipment, food, clothing. These roadblocks here, folks, if they're not solved and addressed, it's going to create further wedges. And we've got to get rid of that I, me, myself attitude because if if there are more people in the Army who are there just for personal reasons and not for the, um, what do you call it, for the um, broader um, perspective, then we're going to have more I, me, myself versus us, we, ourselves. The National Army is should be about us, we, ourselves, not I, me, myself. Funding a military, folks, requires money. And how about... And raising money depends upon the military. And without money, how could the U.S. government sell any Western lands with the promise of protecting all potential settlers from any or all future Indian raids? Think about that, folks. Money, a budget, it's the lifeblood. Alexander Hamilton, folks, he is the new U.S. Treasury Secretary, and he went about presenting a multi-page report on the public state of the public credit come January 1790 in regards to paying off all outstanding debts. Foreign debt, believe it or not, folks, was $12 million. Money owed to France, Spain, and Dutch bankers, and Dutch bankers uh, were the ones that were um, giving us loans. Uh, John Adams had went overseas to uh, the Netherlands to secure a loan in the final years of the war, most notably around the time when the war um, when the British invaded uh, the South, the Southern colonies. The Revolutionary War debt, folks, um, and the domestic debt, well, the Revolutionary War debt was $12 million based upon money owed to France, Spain, and the Dutch bankers. Domestic debt stood between $42 million and $25 million each. Domestic debt was um, money or amount owed by federal and state governments to their own peoples. Hamilton's plan sought to have the federal government take over the state's debts. So the federal government's going to be asked to assume all state's debts. May of 1790, Alexander Hamilton proposed to Congress a tax on whiskey, the first federal tax on an American entity, which ultimately passed 10 months later in March 1791. And when I'm on the air again next, we'll talk a little bit about just how contentious it, that tax was for those whom were opposed to it. December of 1790, Hamilton presented plans for a national bank which was re replicated from the model used in England. Alexander Hamilton, folks, is a Federalist. Other uh, politicians of the day who were Federalists at that time were like John Adams, George Washington's vice president. Washington was a Federalist. Uh, John Jay was a Federalist. There's nothing wrong with Federalists. Federalists, however, are the political party whom favored a strong central government, including centralized financial institutions like this um, bank, National Bank, Whereas men like Thomas Jefferson, the new Secretary of State, he is an anti-federalist. He is opposed 
to a strong central government. Yes, the Anti-Federalists fear that if, if the government has too many powers, then those powers, those strong powers, would infringe upon, upon the people without boundaries. Hamilton's National Bank proposal led to division versus unification. I hate to say it, but it did. And this division was felt widely amongst the states, given most notably the southern states, whom saw no need for a national bank. Why? Why do you think the southern states were opposed to a national bank, folks? Because they felt that the national bank would benefit the northern and middle states, whose economies were mercantile-based, commerce, commercial. In other words, if the National Bank existed, it's only going to favor those whom have, um, whom have solid business ties to, to uh, commerce and commercial purposes, where they are shipping out goods left and right overseas to England and France. Uh, in other words, they're the ones that are going to be reaping in the profits. For the South, it's an agrarian economy, and while, yes, they can ship stuff overseas, but an agrarian economy is one that's going to be done, um, it's going to operate far more differently than a mercantile one. But in the end, folks, um, it turns out that representatives from North and South reached what's called a compromise, which happened in 1790 with the Residence Act which made Philadelphia America's capital until 1800. The new capital that was agreed upon in terms of its uh, new location would be placed along the Potomac River, a more uh, southerly site. It wasn't way down in the deep south, but it was a, more of a southerly site south of Philadelphia and what, it, what we now might think of as like near the uh, Mason-Dixon line, not too far. So the Southerners got a capital that was not so much located along the Potomac River, but it was in a more um, better-defined southern location. But as for Alexander Hamilton, what did he get in return? He got the National Bank approved. So, okay, the Southerners may not be extremely wild about this National Bank, but luckily, they went along with it because they got what they were able to um, achieve on their end, and that is that, and that simply is that in ten years from now, in eighteen hundred, the capital will relocate from Philadelphia to uh, what we now know, of course, in modern day um, language as Washington D.C., or what they then called the District of Columbia um, in eighteen hundred. But the bottom line is, folks, is that even in the midst of some partisan tension, the gov this young republic is still finding ways to make compromises. They may not be the most perfect compromises, but they are the but at the time that they are, have taken place, they are the best that uh, can be uh, created to ensure that government will be functioning, not just in the present moment but long term. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, segment. And uh, when I'm on the air again next, we'll be into uh, part two of, uh, con of uh, Confederations. And when I'm on the air again next, we will talk a little bit uh, briefly about why uh, there were those whom had opposed uh, the whiskey tax. And um, also, what kind of um, stances we um, 
we uh, were uh, viewing with regards to what needed to be done with uh, Indian Affairs. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Take care for now and stay safe.